HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a full-service marketing and commerce platform that helps restaurants get discovered, make more money, and engage their diners. Join over 8,000 restaurants already using Bento Box today to deliver better hospitality. Visit getbento.com slash chef today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com slash chef. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Sonia Magdevsky of Casa Dumet Wines and Shakira Miracle from the Santa Barbara County Food Action Network. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Sonia and Shakira about Santa Barbara winemaking, creating a more sustainable food system in Santa Barbara County, and we'll get another double Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. It's been a pretty exciting year at the Foundation as we've been taking a lot of inspiration directly from Julia's life. First, the feature film documentary Julia was released. Then the Julia Child Challenge competition for home cooks debuted on Food Network, followed swiftly by the Julia scripted series focused on Julia's rise to TV stardom on HBO Max. Well, we're not stopping there, as Julia's love of Santa Barbara has inspired us to help create a showcase for the food and drink pleasures of one of California's most beautiful and fertile places. Back in 2015, the Foundation collaborated with local producers on the annual Santa Barbara Food and Wine Weekend, which in 2020 begot the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience, designed to shine a light on the dynamic culinary, hospitality, tourism, artisan, and small business community in and around Santa Barbara. 
While the main events were upended by the COVID-19 pandemic, the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience morphed into a series of virtual events in 2021. For 2022, the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience returns with vigor, presenting the first Taste of Santa Barbara, featuring live in-person events from May 16th to 22nd. The Taste of Santa Barbara is a countywide celebration of all things food and drink across the region the Foundation calls home. Our guests today are just two of the many innovators participating in the 2022 Taste of Santa Barbara. Since each works in distinct realms, we've divided today's show into two conversations instead of the usual single one. First up, we're talking to Sonia Megdevsky, who started Casa Dumat's Wines in 2004. Casa Dumat's is a Santa Barbara County winery which focuses on Rhone varietals and includes the Clementine Carter and the Feminist Party labels. Sonia strives to produce wine with integrity using premium Santa Barbara County fruit. She opened her own tasting room in 2011 in Los Alamos in the Santa Inez Valley. Casa Dumetz has recently expanded into offering Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, as well as cider, and opened Babby's Beer Emporium in Los Alamos in 2013. Originally from Michigan, Sonia made her way to Santa Barbara via Malibu after earning a graduate degree in journalism from Michigan State University and serving as a Fulbright Scholar in Macedonia, studying ethnic issues in her parents' homeland. As someone who seeks solutions for peace and understanding in the world— something the world needs now more than ever. She continues her storytelling through winemaking. Welcome to the podcast, Sonia. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. <laughs> well, I'm excited to talk to you about Santa Barbara wine. But let, let's start with you a little bit, because I always like to kind of hear where people come from so the guests get a sense of, of, of their perspective and background. So how did you end up becoming a Santa Barbara County winemaker? I moved to California, which, of course, uh, from Michigan, that was supposed to be temporary, right? I'll be here for a few months. I'll sort of get my cabin in the woods moment. Um, I got to live uh, for free in a very special place in Malibu. And I thought, okay, I'm going to be here. I don't know anyone. I'm going to sort of isolate and complete my thesis work and then move on. And while I was here, um, I started working at a flower shop and, you know, walking on the beach and just really soaking up the California lifestyle. Um, and so at that time, I kept thinking, okay, here I am about to finish my graduate work. Um, I am working at a flower shop and I'm applying for jobs, you know, to work at NGOs sort of in Eastern Europe, you know, again, to sort of continue my work that I started with my Fulbright. And then after a few months, for better or for worse, I kept thinking, well, would you rather live in Albania or would you rather live in California? <laughs> and while I'm sure Albania at that time in 2002 had many wonderful, fabulous attributes, um, I just think that California completely won my heart. And a uh, year after that, I helped plant a small vineyard, a tiny backyard vineyard. So we, you know, dug the earth up and planted vines and from there, just started making wine in the garage. And I, I really, you know, this is 18 years ago, I really sort of had no idea that this was possible or that, you know, I didn't have access to information like this. I, no one in my family, besides in the village in Macedonia, you know, you made very village wine and which was delicious. It just was a whole different system. And so 
seeing this literally from the ground up and seeing what you can create uh, was just magical. And in graduate school, I was writing for an agricultural magazine and my job was to take the work that the researchers and scientists were doing at the university and translate it into sort of everyday person's terms so they could understand, you know, what this scientific research was and why, how valuable it was. And working in that world, you know, was really, for the first time I realized how much effort goes into farming and growing the food and, and everything that we do when we kind of take for granted when you just kind of go to the grocery store. Um, you know, which is sort of definitely part of Julia's world and message, you know, the value of that. And so all of those things kind of came together to honor this, this, this land and what you can create from it. And so I started making wine in the garage and little by little, just, you know, one barrel at a time, you sort of get hooked. And then I started taking all of the classes at the local community college and, in Santa Maria, Alan Hancock, to sort of just get a better understanding of, is this really what I want to do? And after a few classes, that was it. And then I finished the degree there and then just, you know, dove headfirst into this. And and really visiting the Santinez Valley for the first time in 2003 was so eye-opening and so just full of wonder. And it was the first time that I had felt that this could really be home. And then all of those things kind of came together and meeting just the most fabulous people in the area. And then here I am talking to you. <laughs> well, before I want to talk a little bit about Casa du Mets and, and your, your winery, but before we talk about that, I think that's a good segue to what I was going to ask you to talk about next, which is to me, I think the variety and quality, I think those two things, it's not just the quality, it's also the variety of Santa Barbara wine still seems to me both extraordinary, but also to fly kind of still below the national radar. Maybe people really into wine know about it or people who live locally. But I still think that's one of the reasons we're doing the culinary experience and the taste of Santa Barbara is it could still be better known. And and part of that might be that there's a lot of small producers. But I wanted you, from, from your own point of view, as you said, of 18 years there, what makes Santa Barbara wine so special? Everything, you know, <laughs> the people, the landscape, the fruit, you know, we are always striving to improve our systems sustainably, um, you know, when and when grapes first were planted in the area, you know, post po- pro- prohibition, um, you know, at that point, when you embark on a new endeavor, you're sort of trying to figure everything out at once. You are reinventing the wheel. You're trying to figure out, okay, what grows here? How does it work? What's the best results for my, you know, hard work and dedication and and investment? And so, you know, over the last 40 to 50 years, all of that has just slowly evolved with the times and the knowledge that we have of farming and agriculture and people. And with that, you know, the awareness of our area. So I think people who know about Santa Barbara and appreciate Santa Barbara wine and love coming and visiting with us have sort of grown up with us and, and we still keep learning. Um, and we just, just the people and the landscape, you know, are, we have the transverse mountain ranges that, you know, open eat due west to the ocean. And so it moderates this beautiful 
uh, area that we have. So we are able to grow 50 different grape varieties in our area. I sort of liken it to sort of all of Europe smashed into kind of 20 square miles. And, you know, the diversity of that just allows for so many opportunities. And we keep sort of finding the perfect location and the perfect farming method to improve that. And I just think, you know, that energy, the people who started, you know, planting grapes here in this area are still here, are still working in the industry. So all of the younger people coming through, we still have access to that brain trust. And then we just keep building on it. And so, you know, I think we are still a little bit under the radar comparatively to some of the other California wine regions. And we just are such a force and have so much energy to move forward with that I just you know, the future is extraordinarily bright as is today, you know? <laughs> yeah, no. And so let's, let's make that more specific. And so tell us more about Casa du Metz and what, what kind of winery you run and what, what's the, the latest, cause it seems like you've been refining and growing and building and evolving and expanding. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's kind of the same story of Santa Barbara. You know, I come in and, you know, you sort of fall in love with a grape variety and you think, wow, what is this? You know, so I started making Viognier and Syrah and a little bit of Pinot. And, and suddenly you think, okay, well, you know, they're very unique, distinctive grape varieties. And so what do they have to offer? And then you discover sort of where are they grown and who's the grower and how are we farming it and what's the result? And, you know, while time seems to move so quickly, we have one opportunity every year to sort of navigate that harvest season. And so and, and as as reliable and as stunning and beautiful as our growing region is here in Santa Barbara, um, you know, it's still a one year cycle, an annual cycle. And so just getting to sort of dig in deep with everyone here has been such an honor. And so, you know, you start with one you continue to grow with another, you sort of find your way. And for me, you know, it started with Viognier and then, you know, life evolves. And so the fruit that I was working with no longer is there anymore. And so you kind of move on and you move to a different area and you expand and you grow. And there's, there's so much to discover and everything is so accessible. And so through that, you know, hard work and dedication is everything. And so you just find something and you commit to it. And so for me... Once I started working with Grenache in 2010 was the first time I started working with it. And I'd been making wine for a few years at that point, but I had never quite worked with this grape before. And it was a complete anomaly compared to the other grapes that I had worked with. And so yet again, you think, whoa, what is this? You know, what just happened here? And so since then, you know, I think it goes back to my work as a journalist. I mean, I'm for better or for worse, an extraordinarily curious human. And so I just keep wanting to learn more and, and understand why things are the way they are and, and how do we improve it and how do we make it better. And so that every year, that wonder, that mystery, that that just possibility is is really what has kept me through. And so now we really do, we focus primarily on Rhone varieties. So it's a number of different Grenaches, Mouvedre, a little bit of Graciano, the GSM with the Feminist Party. And since Pinot is how I started planting a tiny Pinot vineyard, we have one Pinot every year in sort of honor of that foundation. And um, yeah, when I first opened the tasting room in Los Alamos, it was 2011 and I had been making wine 
And I was just too nervous and afraid, essentially, to kind of put it out there in the world. And I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to try it. I'm going to give it six months. So I find it, found a tiny little spot and took out a tiny loan from my parents and, and set it up. And I thought, well, I'm my only employee. If the wine is terrible and the experience is terrible, then I'll know in six months that I can't pay my bills and that I'll go back and apply for that job, you know, in Eastern Europe. Um, and then here we are, you know, over 10 years later. So it's really a testament to the people of this area. It's a testament to the beauty of the fruit and, you know, all of the people that have come to visit us throughout the years that, you know, keep us going. I was curious about what you said about, the, the, you know, when you started working with Grenache, it was so different. Are Were you referring to the fact that as a winemaker, when you work with grapes through the fermentation process, not all grapes behave the same way? Or what did you mean by that? Absolutely. It's not only in the fermentation process. It's also in the growing process, in the agricultural process, in the farming process. You know, there's so many factors involved, you know, in, in any 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 produce, any food that you buy, there's so many decisions that go into the result um, that we don't even, we don't have time to consider all those decisions because that's all we would think about. And so with Grenache in particular, again, compared to the other grapes that I had worked with previously, you know, it was really all about, you know, how do we, what is this grape? How does it behave? Where does it behave you know, better, uh, you know, in this area versus another area. And in Santa Barbara, for all of its diversity, you know, we are really so beautifully suited uh, to grow Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, again, because of that cool climate zone that we are in. So it's Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and Syrah are the primary grapes that we grow here. And then there's so many others. And so, you know, again, the focus and the learning and the understanding has really been vintage by vintage with Grenache, and so it's, and, and, you know, so many others. And so it's just been so fun to learn. And I guess that, you know, the beautiful thing about wine and agriculture is, you know, there's no one right answer. You know, there's always a better way. There's always a more sustainable way. And you're always looking for that better way. And so you're just looking to sort of how do we make this the most beautiful thing we can within, you know, the limits that we are given in this area. Um, and so Grenache is then, it's just a, it's a larger variety. It's a more vigorous variety. Um, given, you know, the, the abundant sunshine that we have here in California and in Santa Barbara, you know, it's, it thrives. And so for us, really, it's about how do we find that nuance? How do we make the investment in terms of people and resources that can, we can invest the most minimally um, for every reason, you know, um, to keep it as, as sort of, you know, close to nature as possible and, you know, achieve the greatest result. And so that just takes time. It takes conversation. And so, you know, again, testament to the growers that I work with who are so fabulous, you know, they all want to improve things. They all want to, to make it better and better. And so it's just a long process. <laughs> It takes gotcha. a while. Yes. No, you, there, there, it, it, wasn't there an old Ernest and Julio Gallery? We make no wine before it's time. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Apparently and it still true. holds even for, for uh, <laughs> other production. So the May 22nd Taste of Santa Barbara Wines will bring together wineries from each of Santa Barbara's AVAs 
at the historic El Presidio in downtown Santa Barbara. Now, will you be representing one specific AVA or do you actually um, source wine from growers in more than one of the AVAs or how would you kind of describe how Casa Dumets fits into that landscape? Yeah, thank you. Because we do so many different grape varieties, they're not all grown in one AVA. We are whittling that down a little more, um, but it's not in sort of the standard realm of what you would imagine. So the majority of our fruit currently comes from the Santa Rita Hills AVA, and yet Mm -hmm. Santa Rita Hills is primarily known for uh, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, and rightfully so. It's just epic. It's gorgeous. It's stunning, and and it's very well known. Um, Do you you want to – sorry to interrupt you. Just describe where – the Santa Rita Hills is also a specific kind of, it's small, but region. Yeah. Can you describe where it is in Santa Barbara County? Yeah. So the Santa Rita Hills is west of the 101 when you're driving north on the 101. When she sort of hit Buellton, if you turn left on the 246 at that point, you're heading west. Um, and that region, it's a relatively small region. It encompasses the Santa Rita Hills, and it goes along the 246 and Santa Rosa Road. Um, and, you know, the, the, the vineyards in there are growing and, the, you know, the number of vineyards because the, the growing zone is just so beautiful. And so it's very close to the ocean. And so every morning we are, you know, covered in morning fog, you know, from the ocean that pushes in. And then every afternoon, early afternoon, the inland heat pushes that fog back out, dries everything up. We get a nice wind. Everything's nice and dry, nice and sunny. And then the cool air comes back in from the ocean in the afternoon. And so it moderates the temperature. And so we have just enough sunlight uh, to ripen fruit and a very long extended growing season so the fruit can hang for a very long time without sort of being overly done because the temperature is always about 75 80 degrees particularly during the growing season so it's just it's just a really beautiful and so it really does well with delicate more delicate and tender varieties such as pinot and chardonnay and the beauty now of growing other varieties that are grenache or syrah is that we get the benefits of this long extended growing season uh, just with different grape varieties. So it's just a new, different expression. It's really fun. It's really exciting. And on every different AVA, that's the beauty of it, sort of has its own identity uh, because it sort of specializes in the particular grape varieties that are grown there, you know, depending on temperature and soil and, and all kinds of things and people and focus. And so it's, you know, it's it can be a little nerdy if you want to get into it. And then it's just so fun when, when you do get into it because it's just this whole new language, this whole new discovery of, you know, you get more and more involved and you just sort of can't stop. It becomes an obsession. And would you say sort of you could think about it that the AVAs in, in Santa Barbara County also are maybe not directly but loosely linked to the microclimates in the different regions because that relates to what grapes grow the best there or or, or is that actually incorrect? No, that's absolutely correct. So it's the microclimate, it's, you know, the way the wind blows, it's the warmth and the temperature degree days, and it's sort of the landscape and the soil. So, you know, an AVA petition, when a group of people get together, or one person, it's, you know, it can be anything, um, decides, you know, hey, this space is very valuable, and we want to honor this, and we want to make sure that everybody knows about it. Uh, And so you do this 
fairly arduous process. It goes through the federal government. They have to approve it. And so there has to be historical connection. There has to be climate connection. There has to be geographic connection. There has to be so many variables that have to fall under, you know, the criteria to create an ABA and for it to be sort of honored and approved. And so once that happens, the people who have decided to do that you know, really now it moves to marketing and creating the best product you can to sort of get the word out to say, hey, you know. And so as you were saying with Santa Barbara being still kind of unknown relatively, um, you know, we have such gorgeous agriculture here. And, you know, the you know, I think the top three industry in Santa Barbara is agriculture. Even we think of the beach and the ocean and, you know, vacation and all kinds of things. It's agriculture runs, runs our area, which is really stunning. Well, I think that is a terrific preview of what people can hear about, experience, and taste at the Taste of Santa Barbara Wines. And Sonia will be there um, leading a panel discussion. So thank you for that really great um, preview. We hope that's whetted people's appetites to come join us. Me too. There's so many fun, uh, fun wines and fun producers that will be there. And the lineup, you know, speaking to Donna and you about this event has just been so, so exciting. You know, I've been participating in the event when it was at the Bacara for years. And, you know, it's just so exciting to have it back live you know, in person so we can taste together, we can smile together, we can enjoy and celebrate together. It's it's really time, and I think everyone's really excited about it. Yes, and it will be in person, IRL, and for anyone worried about safety, the majority of the Taste of Santa Barbara Wines event will be outside in this beautiful historic courtyard of the El Presidio, which is literally the oldest place in Santa Barbara. Um, so it's going to be, I think, a really special day. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk to Shakira Miracle, the executive director of the Santa Barbara County Food Action Network. And stay tuned for another Double Julia moment later in the show. Stay with us. In the heart of Williamsburg, Brooklyn, Lilia combines wood-fired seafood, handcrafted pasta, classic Italian cocktails, and warm hospitality. Since 2016, it's been celebrated as a neighborhood gathering place, bringing the best of Italy to New York City. Lilia is one of over 8,000 restaurants that leverage bento box to power their digital front door, including their website, gift cards, event management, and more. BentoBox is a marketing and commerce platform built specifically for the hospitality industry. With BentoBox, get discovered, make more money, and engage your diners so you can deliver great hospitality both in person and online. Visit getbento.com chef today to learn more and get your first month free. That's getbento.com chef. Next, we're talking to Shakira Miracle, Executive Director of the Santa Barbara County Food Action Network. SBC FAN, as it's known, was spearheaded by Santa Barbara's Community Environmental Council and the Food Bank of Santa Barbara to create partnerships and fuel regional collaboration to improve Santa Barbara's food system. 
Shakira is a system solution designer, stakeholder collaboration facilitator, and social justice and planet advocate. She has more than 20 years experience in philanthropic, government, faith, and business sectors in the USA, Canada, and China. Prior to joining SBC Fan in 2020, Shakira coordinated a poverty relief initiative in British Columbia. In her free time, Shakira enjoys exploring nature with her family, taste-testing fruit at farmer's markets everywhere, and shares that her spirit animal is Dolly Parton. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast, Shakira. You knew I had to get that in. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing her up, Todd. All right. Well, we're going to shift from Dolly back to SBC Fan. And let's just start with kind of, because it's a pretty new organization, what is SBC Fan's purpose and what are its goals as a change maker? Sure. So the purpose, let's start, well, let's back up. Let's start with the mission um, because the mission really drives what our purpose is. Um, the mission of the Santa Barbara County Food Action Network is to connect align and activate food system change makers. Now, to be clear, the network can certainly be a catalyst for change, but we are not the network. Every eater from producer to consumer in our whole region are the change makers. This connection alignment and activation work will ultimately develop a robust local food economy, a healthy and just community, and a well-stewarded, resilient food shed. And our purpose as an organization is to steward the Santa Barbara County Food Action Plan, which was published in 2016. And so the plan was created to be a roadmap, if you will, to achieving our ultimate goal of building a more resilient food system for our county. So I think that, that that's quite interesting. So you see, and I think as I learned from, from conversations we've had before, the change that you're, or the change makers is basically like, people and everybody involved. And SBC Fan as an organization is is a facilitator, essentially, of that change? Correct. We convene and coordinate. And so as we've evolved over the last two years, and it's very important to tell you that uh, food system networks across the country are very place-based. And we'll talk a bit about that um, a little more, I'm sure. But Um, The idea of these regional food system networks is to hold space for all voices and to provide some accountability. You know, oftentimes really great initiatives, projects, uh, businesses, et cetera, they get off the ground and then, you know, external shocks to the food system and uh, whatever our economy, politics, et cetera, be the case, um, then balls drop. And so we keep those balls in the air um, and then from there convene folks from across the food system. So if you eat, I always say you're a food system change maker. And so you have uh, through your choices daily and what you eat and where you buy uh, to uh, how you further engage in activating the food system. Uh, We bring folks together so that we can better align shared values and goals and then ultimately activate um, areas of the food system. Our collective goal is to change the food system from the ground up. So place-based community-led collaboration, which increasingly food system network research, again, um, throughout the United States is showing 
uh, is really going to be the key, both locally and globally, in true systems change for feeding everyone, healthfully and also accessibly and affordably. Well, let's talk a little bit more specifically about some of those balls that might get dropped or or people start to carry and then you want to help them. What are these kind of gaps and hurdles? And I'm asking you a huge question, but maybe you can put it into the simplest possible buckets of sure. what do we need to do to create a more sustainable food system or what in, in from SPC's fans perspective are these bridges you're trying to build? So I love your question, and I love the way that you framed that question, because there are many overlaps in terms of gaps that are identified, whether it's in a local community or the global food system. Now, currently, uh, as there are many gaps, the ones that are really rising to the top within our region are lack of regional infrastructure and procurement policies. So we have a very top-down food system, right? We have a monopoly of a few processors, distribution points, et cetera. Um, And a lot of institutions and local economies are, are not used to and don't really have the system set up in their favor so that they can uh, uh, procure a percentage of local food. The other big gap that's really being shown around here is regional legislative and regulatory policies. They could just use some broader voices speaking into them, especially from those who are being regulated. And some evaluation. As we all know, a lot of times legislation's archaic. You know, you get it done, and then the big achievement is getting it done. And so that whole reflection evaluation piece um, doesn't happen oftentimes in legislation. And then the lack of farmers being trained up to take the baton from our aging farmers. And then ultimately, the decreasing amount of farmland. So I'm going to tell you, Todd, you're going to talk to, you know, food system actors across the U.S. and beyond, and they're probably going to say the same thing or something similar. Well, it's interesting because I'm struck by what you're talking about, and we're, we're getting into the policy weeds here, but I think it's important, is that for the last 50, maybe 70 years, there's been a, a, a policy movement to nationalize and consolidate and if you would say delocalize our food system and mm-hmm. the movement and the revelations, which I think the pandemic even just laid bare even more, are to reverse that system because of its inequities uh, in many levels and inefficiencies. And um, because the efficiencies were designed, right, mostly just for cost savings for corporations, they weren't designed as efficiencies for either health or benefits to for example, actually small farmers. Is, is that is that a good way to look at it? And and what the the mountain to climb that is then replicated all across the country in local markets? I would say yes um, to all the above. And and um, I would go a step further in saying that oftentimes um, with great change, as we've experienced, especially in this country. It takes time over a period of time, and it takes moments of sudden acceleration and then a bit of softening and then acceleration, et cetera. Um, it, you need the accountability piece and all of that. And what I would add is 
Through the pandemic, definitely we see the monopolization and the centralization of a more globalized, mechanized food system. Yes, to mitigate costs on the um, the corporate uh, production side and processing side, but also because we have been conditioned to believe that food should be very cheap. And we have lost that connection to that food producer so that we truly understand the whole costs associated with creating healthier food. So the thing I would add to what you're saying is sometimes I will hear people say we need more of a balance between global uh, mechanized food system in order to, quote unquote, feed the world. Mm hmm. I w- and and localization to provide more accessible uh, locally produced food. I would I would argue that if we could move into more of a harmonization where equity is considered, um, so that opportunities and access to affordable, healthy food and food that is reflective of your culture and um, dare I say, gut microbiome. Again, not an expert or a scientist in any of these areas. I want to be sh- to be sure I say that. Um, but in my humble two cents and experience, it certainly shows that common sense prevails, that ultimately we do need to harmonize until we get to a point of more of a place-based uh, regional food system approach. And uh, yes, the, the goal would be to get people healthier and for people to recognize their culture and in one of the many places that we do, but foremost of those is oftentimes food. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm struck by this moment in time with the war going on in Ukraine Mm -hmm. and Chef Mm -hmm. Jose Andres's approach through World Central Kitchen. And even before the pandemic, one of his revelations and also which came from a reaction of horror, I think, first in Haiti, was that in emergency situations, people were being fed very cheap, totally culturally nonspecific food mm-hmm. at actually a fairly high cost because of the transportation things. And that was one exactly. of his you know, kind of immediate reactions, which is, this is crazy. Let's use the resources at hand locally and keep things culturally appropriate. But I think, do you think it's easy to dismiss that as like a luxury? You know, that's funny you would ask that question after uh, describing uh, some of the statements that Jose Andreas has made, um, who is on the ground day after day um, feeding communities and witnessing firsthand um, what this looks like, what a broken food system looks like. I was told uh, about a year ago when I was speaking to someone um, at a high level uh, in our food system in the United States, when I was arguing for more access to affordable local food for better health outcomes, this this person said to me who had had a, a career in um, federal government in the United States and now in food systems work, um, well, you know, are you really just pushing a bourgeois idea um, that judges someone because, you know, they are choosing to drink a 200-calorie soda? And Todd, I push back on that, as Jose Andres probably would too. 
And I said, you know, people drink what they have available to them. And when you need calories, you're going to put anything you can put into you with the money that you have at your disposal. But if you have more access and the food is affordable and made affordable, even if it's through supportive systems like EBT, um, in the in the state of California, we have CalFresh, uh, for example, um, it is not about... Um, us versus them, or some sort of class or culture war. This is about a system that needs to reassess who are they feeding, why are they feeding them what they're feeding them, and who benefits, and what does that benefit look like. If it is monetary and a few people benefiting, then I don't buy it. Yeah, no, I don't buy it either, because if you look at people who do have enough money to make their food choices, they very, very rarely are substantial consumers of 20-ounce soft drinks, um, when obviously they could have as many as they like. Um, mm -hmm. So let's talk some other specifics. And what I'm really excited about is the collaboration we have going with SBC Fan and the upcoming Santa Barbara Culinary Experience, Taste of Santa Barbara. And so all of us the foundation included, and an organization we've talked to before called Food Tank, we're, we've worked together for quite a while um, to host a panel discussion during the Taste of Santa Barbara. It'll be on May 21st about this very topic, rebuilding our global food system, but also talking about how Santa Barbara, through organizations like SBC Fan and all these many players in the county, are helping to create a national model of how you could do things differently and better. And I was hoping that you could give us a preview of what we can expect to learn from the various speakers that are going to be there, particularly the people who are representing Santa Barbara County. Can, can you tell us kind of a little preview of some of those people and, and why you think they were great choices to talk about this subject? Sure thing. Um, so, just at the very high level, folks from across sectors, local indigenous communities, farm businesses and farmers, ranchers, even federal government, global ag um, and higher education uh, are examples of uh, how they are individually and collectively working together to create a more resilient and inclusive food system from the ground up rather than the top down. Uh, as has, as we've spoken of and continues to be the case. I'm really excited um, because uh, folks such as our federal representative, Salud Carbajal, will be speaking on um, how federal policy and legislation will impact local communities in that uh, effort. Um, we'll have Dr. David Cleveland. He is a professor of environmental studies emeritus at the uh, University of California, Santa Barbara, uh, who incidentally really was the catalyst for the Food Action Plan, uh, many would argue, because he and a team of researchers um, wrote or did, completed the research and wrote uh, a paper on the outcome of their research, uh, learning that, and this is very reductive, um, so I'd encourage all of you to look up that uh, 2011 paper online, but essentially they found that 99% of the produce and fruit that is grown in Santa Barbara County is exported. And by the way, 2011, 
more than 95% of the produce and fruit that is consumed in this county is imported. That's yeah, a red I lo- flag. Yeah, I love that you brought Woo! that up because that stat just totally to- is totally crazy. And especially in a place where you're you're not constrained in what you can grow and produce because of the the good soil and the climate. I mean, yes, think about the fact that this is a Mediterranean climate. We're not Minnesota where we have a, <laughs> a winter season where we can't grow anything at all. So, you know, we have an issue and this is very interesting, um managing abundance rather than um an issue of scarcity. And ironically, I think that that could translate across food systems across the nation um, that, you know, oftentimes we have the food. Uh, it's what we do with what we have and are we sharing it and, uh, you know, how is it propagated and where and with what resources, et cetera. So, yes. So back to back to uh, May 21st. Um, we're also excited because there will be a real um, deep dive around actions that individuals are taking within their own sectors that are intersectional. I love that word. I love that <laughs> word because we're doing all the things and therefore accelerating and we're not reinventing wheels and we are creating community through it. So one example um, is a rancher in the mid part of our county, uh, whose mother is a vegan, but they are cattle ranchers and they are regenerating their soil through ranching. And so it's just very interesting to me to see that there's a place for everyone um, and to do things that the, you know, uh, outcomes are adding value and not extractive and we can all find a common language in that right i mean even a even a family of vegans <laughs> who are cattle ranchers <laughs> um and then of course food tank will be there danny nuremberg um she will be uh interviewing representative carbajal and um if any of your listeners have been following food tanks um panel discussions that have been taking place across the u.s this year Wow. I mean, really challenging, hard questions. And what I really love about Food Tank is they are willing to have the hard conversations out in the open. And they ask the hard questions, not coming from a place of trying to further polarize, but quite the opposite. They're there to facilitate a common language so that we can move forward and truly build a food system for all that uh, feeds all and is um, ultimately creating a healthier, not only individual um, health outcome, but a healthier community and communities as a whole. I'm really looking forward to it because I think for anyone interested in the future of our planet and the food system and sustainable, and as you say, being a change maker yourself and being able to make informed decisions about your consumption, hearing from people who are deep in it everywhere from, as you say, the producers on the ranch to the congressmen and what they're doing legislatively, I think we're we're all really excited about diving into. So 
Uh, thank you for sharing that. We're going to take a break. And after, we'll get another Double Julia moment. Get in touch. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. Or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf. And let us know what you think about today's show. We'll be right back. Hey everyone, I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one, and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow The One Recipe wherever you get your podcasts. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. Sonia, what's your Julia moment? My Julia moment is when I was starting to move forward and become a quote-unquote adult, and I realized that my uh, I didn't do any cooking as a kid at all, <laughs> like nothing. And so I graduated from college and I sort of panicked. And so I started buying all of these cookbooks to, to understand. And the first two books I bought was The Way to Cook and Baking with Julia. And, uh, you know, just the inspiration of looking through these and the possibility of what was there with the descriptions and the photographs and just diving into a recipe and successfully or not, <laughs> you know, um, you just learn that anything is possible. And it's, and I still have those books and they're always on the shelf and it's just such a pleasure to be inspired by them. And now you're a Santa Barbara County winemaker. Yeah. It's like a whole, <laughs> yeah, embarrassment and I guess of riches. Was, yeah. The most beautiful thing also about when you come to Santa Barbara, particularly sort of the way I did and you immerse yourself in the, in the wine and the food scene. I mean, Julia's everywhere. Everyone has a story. Oh, I, and photographs and memories. And it's just, she is just ubiquitous in her energy. And that is, that's such an inspiration to know that someone can have such a tremendous impact globally and on such a local level as well, that it is so personal and it is so honest and full of integrity. And it's just really a, a thrill to be a part of it. And we probably, I feel like this moment, we should give a shout out to Richard Sanford, who I know has been a mentor to you and obviously was a good yeah. friend of Julia and instrumental in, in uh, creating the Santa Rita Hills ABA. Absolutely. I mean, Richard is just the most delightful, kind human. You know, he gives everyone time. He honors everyone and everything. And he's so in touch with his focus and vision, particularly with the Santa Rita Hills and his story, you know, again, is not for the faint of heart. The efforts that they had to, had to, you know, overcome to, you know, succeed in the way that they did against all odds is, is you know, it's just, that's, that's why we're here. It's really, really an honor to sort of continue that, that hard work and dedication. Yes, I hope for everyone listening, this has made you 
feel like you have to be there for the Taste of Santa Barbara Wines. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today, Sonia. Oh, thank you, Todd. So, so, so very much. It was such an honor and a thrill. I appreciate it. Our pleasure. Thank you. Okay, Shakira, your turn. What's your Julia moment? I have been looking forward to this moment for a long time. Uh, <laughs> when you had first shared this with me, that this was an opportunity I would be able to tell this story, um, it did more for me than you will ever know, Todd, uh, in terms of uh, reflection and uh just a, a firmer grounding and remembering the things that matter most. Um, and truly a child uh, has a part of that story in my own life. So when my sister and I were little, we would watch reruns of The French Chef on PBS after Sesame Street and Picture Pages with Bill Cosby, and sometimes dinner at Julia's with my mom. My sister at the time was very little. She was about three or four years old. I was a few years older than her. And I made her pretend with me all the time. Uh, I had an easy bake oven and we'd play with pots and pans and spoons in front of the TV. So, well, I guess we were drawn to Julia right away because I would constantly lean into my sister and say in my best Julia voice, hello. And she would have these huge, she had these huge blue eyes that would go huge. They would go so big and she'd fall backward every single time. It would just, you know, startle her. Um, my mother or our mother put a big white t-shirt on us. Um, and I must've been our daddy's t-shirts and tied the back so we could have aprons like Julia. So years later, my sister became an incredible home cook. Uh, she even went so far as to open up a cupcake business on the Outer Banks called Sweet Miracles. She was obsessed with cooking shows from that point forward. Um, she, in recent years, was diagnosed with colorectal cancer. And so in the last few years, whenever I was at the hospital with her post-surgery or in her final days, um, as recently as this past December, uh, that's all we watched together. And one of the last things that she told me before she died was she knew from when she was a preschooler, she was meant to be a chef. Now, I believe that Julia was her inspiration. In my early college years, um, I lived in Santa Barbara, where I got reacquainted with my fond memories of Julia, as she lived here most of the time at that point. And I purposely would eat at Superica, a local um, Oaxacan restaurant here in Santa Barbara, because Julia said it was good. And um, when I think about that timeline, my, my sister uh, died uh, just uh, a couple of months ago. I believe there are people like Julia who pass their time on earth and make an impact similar to the waft of good smelling food. It spreads far and wide. It lingers for a time. And it creates a memory in your mind for a lifetime. I think that Julia was a through line in my sister's life that connected me always to her 
And I, for that reason, will always be grateful for Julia and will always be passionate about providing opportunities for all people to access healthy and nutritious food because it is the most delicious food. And I truly believe it was Julia's essence that drives that impact even to this day to the point where oftentimes if I'm cooking in the kitchen with the kids, the first thing is I will yell out in my best Julia voice, hello, (laughs) freak out my children because they have no context (laughs) and and giggle to myself uh, with gratitude. Oh my gosh, Shakira, that's so beautiful. And I know what you've um, gone through losing your sister and, um, but hopefully you find solace in, in that you'll always have that memory and that connection and that your work in the food world will, will carry that on. Thank you so much for sharing, um, that very personal connection. Well, and Todd, thank you for, uh, bringing SBC fan into the fold of Julia child, uh, found, uh, foundation foundations work because, Thanks to you, you have reignited that very far memory in my mind um, that I could I could feel, I could taste, I could hear, I could sense. But now it is crystal clear at the forefront of my mind, and I am humbled and honored to um, be a part of uh, the culinary experience. So thank you very much, Todd, to you for the work that you're doing. Well, you're most welcome. Thank you for saying that. But And we're excited to share more about SBC fans' mission on the 21st of May. So we really hope um, people will come. It is a ticket event, but it's very affordable. Um, and thank you, Shakira, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks, everyone, for listening. That's a wrap for Season 13. We'll be back in May with more new episodes. For more about Sonia's many labels, go to casadumetswines.com and it's at casadumetswines on Instagram. For more about Santa Barbara County Food Action Network, visit sbcfoodaction.org. Go to sbce.events and click on Taste of Santa Barbara to purchase tickets to the 2022 lineup. They will go fast as space is limited. Festivities begin May 16 with special menus and drinks during Santa Barbara Restaurant Week, and the fun continues with curated programming from May 20th to 22nd, featuring a screening of the Julia documentary and a Q&A with its directors, Betsy West and Julie Cohen, the Rebuilding Our Food System with SBC Fan and Food Tank panel discussion, and the Taste of Santa Barbara Wines. There'll be free special programming at the Santa Barbara Farmer's Market on Saturday, May 21st, including a live taping of this show inside Julia's Kitchen. Join us to eat and drink our way across Santa Barbara County, May 16th to 22nd, and make sure to follow at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram for the latest updates. And make sure you're following the foundation. It's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. Please rate the show and leave us a review if you haven't already. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. 
Thanks, as always, to my co-producer of the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorny. On the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next season on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.